Then we stand this morning as we go to our Father in prayer. And there's so many needs in our world today. I don't, I, you know, we, we would never be remiss in uh, saying there's a need for prayer. Isn't that true? I'm sure some of you are here today and you're facing challenges in your life as well. Let's just bring all of these things to God and let's open our hearts because I believe God wants to speak into our lives today. Uh, we're just gonna hear what he has to say to us this morning as we return in our series to the book of Jeremiah. So Father, as we open our hearts to you today, our desire is to hear your voice. And Lord, I pray today that whatever the needs are in our life, and there are many needs represented here, I just pray that we would lay them at your feet right now. We would learn to distrust you, rest in your grace, knowing that you love and care for us, Father. Lord, you care about our issues that are before us, and I pray that through these challenges, Lord, you would strengthen our faith, that you would encourage our hearts to know your goodness in the land of the living. Father, we pray for our world that's so fractured and broken today. We think of what's happening, uh, the conflict in, uh, in the Ukraine, Lord. We think of other areas in our world that people are struggling, people battling even starvation, people that are struggling with just the very essentials of life. And Father, we pray today that you would call each of us to take personal responsibility in some area of ministry, that we would not just live uh, for the concerns that we have, but that you would extend us beyond that into the lives of others, that we might bring grace and glory and the gospel to the world around us. And we thank you for that, Father. Now I pray, anoint not only your servant, but anoint the hearers as they listen to your words. In Jesus' name we pray, and God's people said, amen. Amen, you may be seated. I don't know how many of you have ever echoed these words. Many young people suggest them, scream them in frustration at parents, teachers, and others. But we make that statement, that's not fair. Anybody ever said that? That's not fair? Some of us may not articulate the words, but deep down inside, we may feel that our lives, that things are happening, and we might think, that's not fair. And you know, that's a very profound expression. And it's not just young people that cry out and bemoan and, and become jaded by the injustices that they see and experience in life. There's many jaded people today, many cynical people, many people who are angry and skeptical and frustrated because they look around and they say that life isn't really working. You know, Old Testament scholar Robert Davidson relates a profound truth about life and the challenges that we constantly face. Isn't it interesting? We think, well, I've just gotten over that and something new comes up on the horizon. How many kind of discovered that? We just, they never seem to go away. But he said this, to have confidence in God, however, does not mean that all problems are solved. And uh, some of us in this room are great problem solvers and it gets frustrating after a while when there's just more and more problems and they never seem to go away. Uh, there, there always remains challenges. And I think that there are moments in our lives when we're perplexed. And there's other times, uh, it creates uh, unrest, disappointment, and for some people, they're walking around filled with anger. They're upset and f because of, you know, I would say the injustices of life. Uh, here in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet is personally struggling. What he sees as some tremendous injustices that he personally has experienced. He's been faithful. He's been declaring God's message uh, and, and nothing is happening. You know, isn't that interesting? He's, he's just being faithful to God. He's just doing what God wants him to do and he's saying what God wants him to say 
but nothing is happening. Isn't that interesting? He's been warning the nation of impending judgment. God's not doing anything. How many go, hey God, why did you give me the message? Why are you telling me these things and then you're not backing it up? Why aren't you doing anything about it? Sometimes we get that way. We get a little impatient with God because he's not doing what we think he should be doing. And Jeremiah felt that very deeply. And then there's this idea that evil is persisting in our world. And in Jeremiah's case, his life is even in danger. What's he to do? Now, I think Jeremiah does what we all need to do. He takes his concern to the right person. You know, if you got a, you got a beef, the best person to talk to about it is God himself. He's the one that can do something about it. And when we open up chapter 12, we, we're, almost, we're, we're kind of uh, walking into Jeremiah's spiritual diary. We get a little sense of his dialogue with God. This is kind of an intimate, personal moment. And yet we're beginning to see the soul of the prophet. And today we're going to actually hear the soul of the father. We're going to hear what God thinks about these things. We're going to find out what God feels, God's emotion, God's thoughts, God's sense of pain that he's experiencing. This is a very interesting text of scripture. So Jeremiah begins to pour out his frustrations and uncertainties. I think that's a good spot. Our, our diary should have moments like that when we're saying, God, I'm so beside myself with despair or frustration or concern or, you know, I feel like you're just not hearing me or nothing is occurring that I believe needs to happen. And so in chapter 12, we get this authentic exchange in prayer between hardship and perplexity that Jeremiah is experiencing and God's response to his cry and also God's challenge as well as God's promises and I believe we get an insight into the nature of God itself. So let's take a look. I'm gonna call these three exchanges uh, of dialogue between the prophet and God himself. And we're gonna find out that God is not indifferent. And that's, I think, an important lesson because sometimes we wonder, you know, it seems like God's unmoved, you know, by anything that's happening. And yet I think as we look at the chapter, we'll see that's not true. Let's take a look. The first exchange of dialogue that I think reveals, number one, authentic faith, and then God's response is the cry of perplexity in the confusing moments of life. Anybody ever have moments where you're a little bit perplexed or confused, wondering? You ever wondered, like, why is this happening the way it is? Like, why are God, are you allowing me to suffer these things? Why, why couldn't you just deliver me from this? Why, why did this person have to die and this person lives? Or, you know, as we're going to find out, and this is one of the classic things, why are the people who seem to have no regard for God are really doing well and prospering in life, and there's people over there really doing what God wants them to do, and we're doing our best to serve God, and our life seemed to be falling apart. You know, is, is God, we wonder, is God even fair sometimes? And we're gonna see that in this chapter. So what is our response when what we believe seems to contradict our current reality? Isn't that a good question? How do you feel about that? I've already said it. We're serving God with everything we've got, but things are not working out like we think they ought to. Maybe we are struggling at this moment. Maybe we're a little overwhelmed by what's been happening to us. We may be wondering, God, why aren't you answering my prayers? Anybody ever wondered that question? You know, you're praying and praying and praying. And you know, I have some prayers that I've prayed for a long time and it just seems like God is not doing anything about it. Anybody else besides me that that's happening? 
uh, and you're saying, hey, God, just let you know, I always remind God, you're eternal, but the rest of us are on a time slot here, and uh, things are really beginning to deteriorate, Lord. Can you, can, you, can you do something about that? You know, just point that out to you. You know, I just want to remind you, we're fragile, we're human, you're eternal. It's, you know, you, I know you seem to have all the time in the world. That's not our friend. Time does not seem to be our ally, right? Anybody relate to this? Are you the only one, pastor, that's going through this stuff? And, and then I've, I've already stated this. We see others living this careless lives and we're trying hard to obey and life seems to be in reverse. We're going, I thought we should be going forward right now, but we seem to be going backward. Anybody ever have that experience? You know, just throwing this out there. And, and the reason I bring this out is that we know God's loving and we know God's good, but why does he allow evil to not only survive in our world, but many times it seems to thrive. Anybody ask yourself that question? Why is evil thriving in this world? Well, Jeremiah's gonna bring this up. I'm just kind of raising the questions before we get to the question, all right? So when this question is no longer theoretical, but becomes our experience, now we gain an insight into the pain that Jeremiah is working through in this text. You know, this is not just a theoretical question with him. He's living this question. He's in pain. He's suffering, he's confused, he's struggling with God's call and he's struggling with the cost of obedience. His life is actually in jeopardy. This is not, Lord, I think I'm, you know, I, he's not paranoid, folks. This is actually what's happening to him. He's being attacked by some of the closest people in his life. How many know it's one thing to be attacked by strangers, but it's another thing to be attacked by, you know, he's in a small town, he's been preaching the word of God, the people he's grown up with, and some of his own kin, his family, his extended family are plotting to kill him. How many go, that's not a fun place to be living? You know, he's just doing what God's told him to do, and people are not happy with what he's saying. They're just going, Jeremiah, what is your problem? Would you please be quiet, you know? He seems to be indicating that judgment is coming and some of these people feel like everything is fine because you know when, when, it's, when the current situation is benefiting you, why change things? And yet Jeremiah is calling for change. He's saying our behavior does not line up to God's covenant contract which we have with God. We're violating and, and the people are going, hey, we're doing fine. Everything's good. God's blessing us. Jeremiah goes, it's all short-lived. You're about ready to be destroyed. They don't want to hear that message. So Jeremiah is basically saying, why is this happening? So here, let's, let's pick up the text. Jeremiah 12, verse 1. You were always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet, okay, that yet, I would speak with you about your justice. You know, I have a little concern, God. I just want you to know uh, righteousness and justice, those are kind of interchangeable thoughts. I, I know that, you're, God, you're, you're right, but the way you're doing things, I have some questions about. I, I'm just questioning this stuff. And he says, why does the way of the wicked prosper? That's question number one. Why do all the faithless live at ease? Now, to explain to you uh, this question, in other words, why aren't you dealing with the current evil of our time? He's, he's basically saying, God, you planted them. Who's the you? God, you planted, who's the them? The people of God. You planted these people who are living these unjust lives. They've taken root. 
and they grow and they bear fruit, you are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. In other words, they, they sound right, but they're living wrong. What, what do we call that? Hypocrisy. So he's saying, God, you got a whole bunch of hypocrites here. You know, they're playing the game, they go to church, but the reality is they're not living the life. You know, and yet you're blessing them, God. I don't get it. You're telling me to warn them, and yet you're blessing them. There's a disconnect for me, God. That's what Jeremiah is saying. Yet you know me, Lord. You see me, and you test my thoughts about you. Drag them off. Now, here's, here's Jeremiah's thought. Why don't you just drag them off like sheep to be butchered? In other words, deal with them. That's all he's saying. Treat them according to their actions. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How many, how many know Jeremiah is getting a little intense here? And you go, what a, what a mean guy. Well, think about it. These guys are trying to kill him. So he's not, he's not, uh, he's got some emotion here. But you know, God is, God said this earlier in the chapter. See, Jeremiah has already heard from God earlier. And God said, this is what the Lord says about the people of Anathoth. That's where Jeremiah is from. Who are threatening to kill you saying, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord and you will die by your hands. They're, they're threatening him. They're warning him. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm going to punish them. Their young men will die by the sword, their sons and daughters by famine. Not even a remnant will be left to them because I will bring disaster on the people of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. But you know what Jeremiah is saying? What's his real beef? All right, this is what you're telling me, but I don't see it. The, The issue for Jeremiah is when. Isn't that, don't we have that problem with when? Anybody else have a problem with when? You know, you say this, God, but when? When is it gonna happen? This is what these guys deserve. And nothing seems to be happening. So Jeremiah is not satisfied with the answer and challenges God as to the idea that God would tolerate evil for any length of time. Does anybody get a sense Jeremiah's a little impatient? He's just basically saying, you know, how can a good God tolerate evil? Isn't that the question he's be, that's being raised here? Have you ever wondered why does God put up with evil? Anybody ever thought about that? Why does God tolerate evil? We know he's not for it, but why does he put up with it? Why do we see things drag on and on and on and on over a long period of time and nothing seems to be changing? Like, God, when are you going to deal with all this nonsense? Nobody's ever had these thoughts. Well, I know one person has because Jeremiah has, you know, but he's not the only guy, you know. And then... Jeremiah was questioning, even as many question, why is it that evil people, particularly those who are hypocrites, are enjoying God's blessings while faithful people are suffering? I'm phrasing it another way there. And he's not the only person that struggled with this. Uh, Because you see, it seems to contradict everything the Old Testament teaches. That's why he's struggling with it. As a matter of fact, uh, Job struggled with the fact that, you know, he was suffering and he hadn't done anything wrong. So he's kind of questioning God's justice. Is, was not Job doing that? Come on, read the book. You know, and then we turn to Psalm 73, which is a Psalm of Asaph. And Asaph says it this way, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Right? That's, and then he says this, but as for me, 
He said, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. He's, he's saying, you know what he's saying in verse two? I'm struggling with my faith. And why am I struggling with my faith? It says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, I, I, I cannot figure this out, God. I've done what you've told me to do and I'm not seeming to benefit from that. And then I see wicked people doing their own thing. They seem to be benefiting. I'm struggling with this, God. It's affecting my confidence and faith in you. That's Asaph. So they're struggling. Why are these Old Testament people struggling with this? Well, some New Testament people struggle with it too. But let's go to a deeper understanding of God's covenant with Old Testament Israel. Tremper Longman says this, for the very structure of the covenant seemed to underline the blessings that would come on the righteous who obeyed God and the curses that would afflict those who did not. When you read Deuteronomy 27 and 28, it's pretty clear. If you do these things, God will do this. If you do those things, God will do that. How many know what I'm talking about? God says, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, you're in trouble. How many know that's true? That's exactly what it says. Very clear. He says, it, in other words, it pays to serve God and it, you're gonna suffer if you don't. Now, there's no timeline in that line of thinking, but obviously, we have problems with time. You know, And then, Longman, uh, Tremper says this, a book like Proverbs also points to the good life for the wise and the reverse for the wicked. If you're wise, you get these things. If you're a foolish person or a sinful person, this is what you get. Now, how many know that that's, that's true ultimately? See, we have that problem because, you know, we, we, we are in the moment. We, 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 we say, you know, Generally speaking, it's a principle. If you do the right things, life is better. And if you do the wrong things, you will suffer eventually. But sometimes the eventually may happen into the next life. You see, that's the problem. We don't always see justice in this earthly life. And so we struggle with that. So... Uh, he goes on to say, as for Jeremiah's questions arose in his own situation where he was obeying God's command to speak the divine word to a sinful people who not only rejected not only Jeremiah's message, it wasn't Jeremiah's message, it was God's message, but they wanted to harm the messenger. You know, I love that statement, you know, don't kill the messenger. I mean, Jeremiah's just saying, I'm just telling you what God's saying, but you know what, they're directing their anger at the messenger, right? But it's God's message, and he's reminding them that. So where was God's righteousness in this situation? While Asap came to understand that justice would eventually come, and we read that in Psalm 73, 16, when he says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till, or until, I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. So Asap said, yes, there is justice, ultimately. And I'm satisfied with that, okay? But there are a lot of people who say, oh, I don't know about that, this ultimate destiny thing. What about now, see? And that's where Jeremiah was at. He says, surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. In other words, eventually sin catches up with people. Isn't that true? We see that. Philip Riken says, though Asap was content, Jeremiah continued to complain. He wanted God to write the final chapter on human evil right away. Do something about it now right? 
Many Christians feel the same way. We hear that God will judge every deed, whether open or secret. We know that all the enemies of God will be put to shame at the final judgment. Still, we're discouraged by the triumph of evil in our times. We long for the day when murderers and rapists and racists and child molesters and persecutors of the church and perpetrators of genocide will face divine judgment. Because there is a sense inside of us we want fairness, we want justice, we want what's right to prevail over what's wrong. True. And some of us feel deeply about that. We're wired that way. But I'm gonna say, you know, God knows what he's doing and his timing it's there. So I think that these are legitimate emotions and questions, and I think they're, they're, they're part of what I'm going to call the development of faith. Remember, God is taking you and I on a journey. He's taking you and I from faith to faith, from strength to strength, from glory to glory. So we're on a journey with God. Let me move on to the second exchange, and that's God's response to the challenge of perplexing times. What does God want to say to us right now when, when things aren't working out the way we think they ought to? You know, I think that there are moments that God brings great affirmation and he encourages us, isn't that right? And don't you like it when you're kind of hurting to someone to put their arm around you and encourage you, right? We all want that. But there are other moments in life when that's not what we need. You know, we're in a culture today, everybody wants to be pandered and babied. Come on now. We don't want to be challenged and corrected. You know what God's going to say to Jeremiah? Grow up. Get tough. You know, see, in my generation, growing up as a little kid, sometimes, you know, the, the messaging we got was, you got to get tougher. We don't hear that message anymore. You know what we hear today? Everybody has to understand. And we all have to, you know, get more tender. And, and I'm not against being understanding and being tender, but how about getting stronger? Because let's face it, when you come into a difficult time, if you're a wimp, you're gonna get crushed. And we are, we are in difficult times and the pressure gets on and a bunch of people just collapse under the pressure and God wants his church to get strong. He wants us to be able to handle the intensification of opposition against his people. What are we gonna do when things get harder? Are we just gonna be a bunch of wimps? So this is what God says to Jeremiah. See, I, I put down, I believe that God loves to answer our questions, but not our demands for accountability. God doesn't owe me, you know, I can ask God questions, but I can never question God. God does not feel like he has to answer and be accountable to me, nor does he have to be accountable to you. As a matter of fact, Job tried to make God accountable to him, and God never answered him. and said, I got a few questions for you. You see, you and I are accountable to God, not the other way around. And both Jeremiah and Job found out in a hurry, God doesn't answer those questions. God's not gonna be put on trial. God's not gonna be put on the, on the hot seat and that he has to answer to me. He doesn't have to answer to me at all. I have to answer to him. So he refuses to be questioned and he, he basically you know, asks us questions. And here's how it goes. This is his response to Jeremiah. Many of us probably... Uh, I've read this before. It says, if you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, 
how will you compete with horses? What's he saying to Jeremiah? He says, hey, if you can't handle what you're experiencing now, what happens if it gets tougher? You're gonna wimp out on me, right? Matter of fact, the next verse he says, if you stumble in the safe country, how are you gonna manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Now he's using two metaphors here. We recognize that. Uh, and uh, he's challenging the frustration and pain, but also the faint-heartedness of Jeremiah. I think we often get discouraged by opposition. How many say that's true? Does your heart faint a little bit when pressure's put on you and you're, you're getting pressure put on you and people are coming against you? Does anybody kind of want to, how many are tempted to draw back a little bit? Come on, come on now, let's be honest. Aren't you, aren't, when people are pushing on you, don't you feel like you want to withdraw a little bit? Well, probably. But you know what? God's calling us to battle. He's calling us to stand up in the evil day and learn to trust God. Remember, if you read uh, the book of Ephesians chapter six, folks, we're in a battle. How many recognize as a child of God on this planet, you are in warfare? And you know what we think? Oh, I think we're on a luxury cruise. This is how a lot of North American Christians, you know, we're on the dream boat. Folks, I went to Midway in San Diego. I went to the aircraft carrier. There was a lot of military stuff on that plane. There were, I mean, on that boat, there were, you know, uh, jets and there were helicopters. Listen, when you're in a military engagement, all, it's a different world. We're engaged in a conflict right now for the souls of people and for our own soul and we have to discipline ourselves so that we can handle the conflict that's happening. Paul says when you come up in the evil day, do everything you can to stand. Having done all, stand. Put on the full armor of God. How many go, this is not about being a wimp. Isn't that true? Now what's God telling Jeremiah? You gotta toughen up, buddy. Actually, the days ahead are gonna get harder than what you're experiencing right now. What if, and I'm not prophesying, I'm just saying what if. What if the days ahead in our lives are gonna get far harder? What if the opposition to the church is gonna get far stronger? We gotta get tougher. We gotta get spiritually stronger. Amen? We need to understand. And, and you know, when I talk about being spiritually strong, that doesn't mean I'm arguing with people and I, I'm upset about this or that thing. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that you and I understand what God's called us to. And I think the church right now has been, you know, somewhat pushed aside because our mandate by Jesus is to go and make disciples. And we're getting caught up with a whole bunch of other stuff that's not the primary focus of the church. But when you and I are busy making disciples, you're gonna find there's opposition to that. And that's the kind of opposition we should be addressing and dealing with. So God's calling Jeremiah and us to step up and not give up because of the greater challenges ahead. If we expect God to use us in a significant way, then we need to arm our mind with the greater battles that will come with that. If the more God uses you, the greater the battles you will be faced with. The greater the opposition you will experience. Some of you say, I don't want that. I think the second metaphor needs a little understanding. You know, he says, you know, 
basically Anathop was a rather flat and relatively safe place, but he said the thickets near the Jordan River, back before exilic times, there were lions hanging out. It was jungly. It was dangerous. So he says, you know, if you can't handle what's happening in the safe country, how are you going to handle that when it gets even more dangerous? What are you talking about? See, Jeremiah's ministry was going to go to a whole new level. He was going to be a national prophet. He was going to speak to the nations. How many know that when your ministry level goes up, there's greater opposition and greater intensity against you? You're going to have to handle that pressure. Philip Ryken says, anyone who gets discouraged, downtrodden, and defeated over little things will never fulfill their divine calling. If even little disappointments tempted Jeremiah to leave his calling, how will he cope with real persecution? And this guy's life is on the line, but God says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. See, we have to learn to trust God. That's what it comes down to. You know, God had great things in store for Jeremiah, but he would never achieve them unless he was willing to persevere in the little things. He had to be willing to race with men before he could compete with horses. The same is true for every Christian. If you complain about the simple things God has already asked you to do, then you lack the spiritual strength to do what he wants you to do next. What am I saying today? Welcome to God's gymnasium. We're going to start working out near God. I don't like working out, Pastor. My body refuses this. Well, I'm not getting your body in shape. My goal is to get your soul in shape. My, bo- my goal is to get your spirit in shape, that you're going to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We need to work out, folks, in order to handle what's coming up. Otherwise, we're going to get blown out of the sockets. We're going to be wasted as Christians. We're going to be despairing and discouraged and back off. You know, if your troubles keep you from doing the Lord's work now, you'll never have the strength to do it later. If you want to do some great things for God, you must begin by doing the little things for God. You know, God's not going to give you a bigger assignment if you can't even be faithful to do the little things. That's how you get the bigger assignments. And the only way to do the little things for God is to do them by the strength of the Holy Spirit. So God says, I'm not expecting you to do this in your own strength. Be strong in the Lord, not in yourself, and in his mighty power. So what are we doing? We're seeking God so his strength comes into our lives. Let me move on. Well, he says, your relatives, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. Wow, isn't that interesting? He says, Uh, Just be careful. There's a people out there saying, yeah, you're doing good, but really, they don't have that in their hearts at all. He said, don't even trust them. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You know, that's, that's served me well as a pastor for all these years. You know, I love people, but people are weak. I love people, they mean well, but they don't always follow through. Isn't that true? We all fail each other. So, You know what, keep loving people, but I wouldn't give your full confidence in their ability to do things. Don't be disappointed when they let you down. The only person that's never gonna let you down is God himself. He'll see you through. Let me move on to the third point. God's promises and warnings of greater challenge and sphere of ministry ahead. While Jeremiah brings his heartache and complaint against God's justice, God now opens up his own heart to Jeremiah and we get a window into the heart of God. How many appreciate when you see the heart of God? I don't think you and I can grow until we understand the heart of God. We need to see what he's about. We need to understand where he's coming from. We need to understand why is he delaying, for example, you know, 
justice. Why isn't God dealing with all this evil, pastor? I'm gonna give you an answer to that. So why does God withhold his anger for so long? Because God desires repentance and reconciliation. Even when we refuse to respond to God's call, what occurs in our lives then becomes abandonment and estrangement. We're the ones that lose out. God's patient. We turn against God. In one sense, we gain this insight from the New Testament regarding why God delays his judgment. Peter says it this way. The Lord is not slow, keep, is, is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. In other words, God doesn't address our sins immediately. Until you get to a story like Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, remember that story. Those guys showed up, told a lie. Ah, Peter goes, you're not lying to us, you're lying to God. Boom, the guy drops down dead. Ananias falls at his feet dead. Now, how would you like to have a service where God says, okay, we're gonna deal with sin this morning. Anybody sinned in the last 24 hours? And then he just starts taking people out, you know? That would be a scary service. I don't know how many people would wanna go to church after that. The Bible said, and great fear came on all people. I'll tell you, that would be the truth, wouldn't it? Aren't you glad that God is patient with us? Aren't you glad that God does not deal with us according to our sins, but according to his mercy and grace? Thank God for that. That's why God doesn't judge evil so quickly, because he's trying to save as many of us rascals as he can. That's the goal, right? He's patient with us. Paul says it this way, or do do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness intends to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath. So he says, listen, all the people that think they're getting away with sin, uh uh-uh, you're just storing it up. You're gonna be judged for all the things you're doing. So even though you think, hey, God's not paying attention, he's not noticing, he's not dealing with me, it's all being stored up. Read the book of Revelation. The cup of God's wrath is gonna be poured out one day. Then his righteous judgment will be revealed. But what is it costing God for us to be in rebellion against him? And here we gain insight into the very pain that sin inflicts upon the heart of God. Listen, we get the anguish of God. Here we see God's response to the actions, those he loves. In the conclusion of this chapter are two powerful emotional realities about God. First, his anger towards sin and all it does in destroying us and others. And then the second is his will Uh, is his incredible compassion and the price that he pays to bring about our restoration. God's the one. You see, God is always just. So how does God show compassion and justice? He pays the penalty. God's paying the price. You know, we live in an entitlement world, do we not? People don't understand everything costs. So who's paying for it? You know, it was like when my daughter was going to university and uh, this party said, oh, we're gonna give everybody free education. And my daughter said, who do you think pays for that? They said, we don't care. (laughs) Well, she said, you will one day when you start working because it'll come out of your paychecks. You know, and maybe that's the way it should be. I'm not gonna argue that point. The point is it always costs something. There's nothing free on the planet. It's always free. If it's free to someone, someone's paying the, the bill. That's what we need to understand. And usually it's God. Um, Listen, I think one of the most profound chapters or the expressions of God's compassion is found in Hosea. The people had been unfaithful to God there. And this is what God says. 
My people are determined to turn from me. This is earlier. This is the northern tribes. This is not, Jeremiah is later in the human story and he's dealing with the southern tribes. This is the northern tribes. Even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. Again, saying the right things but not doing the right things. Then God says this, how can I give you up Ephraim? That's the, the largest northern tribe, which many times is a synonym for the, nation of, the northern nation of Israel. How can I give you up Ephraim? How can I hand you over Israel? How can I treat you like Adma? How can I make you like Zeboam? Now, most of us are not acquainted with Adma and Zeboam. You know who, what, these were cities. These were the other cities on the plains that got fire and brimstone when Sodom and Gomorrah went down. They weren't the only two cities. There was a whole bunch of them. These are two more. He says, how can I make you like Zeboam? Then, and then he says, my heart is changed within me. In other words, my heart is stirred. I'm conflicted, God says, and my compassion is aroused. I will not give you up. Do you understand the grief that we're putting God through? I'm gonna give you a sense of it. If you're a parent and your kids are defying you and rebelling against everything you're saying and you're watching them make terrible choices, it'll start tearing you up on the inside. At that moment, you now feel the heart of God. You're feeling what God feels when we, do, we sin. It tears them up. It's tearing them up because he goes, not only are you rejecting me, you're destroying yourself. And my love for you is so great, it's creating me great pain to watch it. There's anguish there. I will not carry out my fierce anger, nor will I devastate Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One among you. I will not come against their cities. Isn't that amazing? God says, no, I, I just can't do it. I can't make myself do it. It's too painful. Well, let me go on here. When God shows compassion, it's never at the expense of his justice. He suffers in our place. He takes the penalty upon himself. See, the cross is the greatest expression of the justice and love of God that's ever been exhibited upon this entire world. At the cross, we see at the same moment God's justice against sin and his love for sinners. Is that amazing? Because he suffers the penalty. He takes it on himself. Wow, that to me is so beautiful. Then we see the anger of God. He says here, I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I'm gonna give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me, therefore I hate her. Now, I've never read this verse before. I don't know why. I've never noticed it. That's a pretty strong statement. I, I, I had to spend hours figuring out what does it mean that God says I hate my people? That, isn't that an interesting expression? The first thought that went into my mind was Esau have I hated and Jacob have I loved? And then I recognized that's a comparison, right? I, I loved one more than I loved the other. He's comparing, there's a comparative thing. That's the same thing where it says, if we're gonna follow God, we must love God and even hate everyone else in relationship to our love to God. It's a comparison thing. I thought of that. But there's more to it than that. Philip Reichen says, although they are wicked and wayward, they're still... Uh, uh, his people, they are his prized possessions. Again and again, God uses the first person singular possessive pronoun. My house, my inheritance, my inheritance, my vineyard, my pleasant field. Interesting. God says, you're mine. I love you. 
Okay? These are terms of endearment. But we have that shocking statement of God giving them up, allowing them to be taken into captivity. Why? Because they're fighting God. How many know you can't help a person who's fighting you? (laughs) How many know the story of a little, maybe a little creature, you see a bird trap and you're trying to help him and the the animal starts biting you, you know, whatever, the trapped animal starts biting you because they feel threatened by you. You're trying to, hey, listen, little buddy, I'm trying to help you. And meanwhile, you know, they're, they're going after you, you know. Hey, I'm trying to help you. I'm trying to get you out of this mess. Don't we ever fight against God? Sure we do. Every time we turn our back on him and do our thing, we're fighting against God. He went on to say, I hate her. Elizabeth Ackermeyer, she's an Old Testament scholar, says that verse has always sent chills up my spine. Personally, I've read it many times and it never registered. I'm pulling it out today. Isn't that a chilling statement? I hate her. What would it mean if God hated us? To turn to Paul's statement in Romans 8 upside down. If God be against us, who can be for us? Because <laughs> I know what it says. For if God is for us, who can be against us? But what happens if, you know, if God is against us, who can be for us? I mean, the whole world could be for us, but if God's against us, we're hooped. But I tell you, if the whole world is against me and God is for me, who cares? God's bigger than the world, right? That's great. Love it. Jeremiah does not mean hate in the sense of a violent, angry emotion. What it means is that God intends to perform an act of rejecting his people, at least for a time. He's going to disinherit them. And it's not hard to figure out why God intended to forsake and abandon his beloved. Her behavior had been beastly. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me. In other words, she's, she's my enemy. She's attacking me. This is the biblical version of the proverb of biting the hand that feeds you. Sometimes we do that with God. Then he goes on to say, many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. Now, the shepherds there are actually leaders of nations, the leaders of the nations that are coming against Israel, primarily Babylon, but they were, you know, some of their neighbors joined in with the Babylonians. Isn't that, don't you love neighbors like that? Oh, you're down, I'm gonna kick you too, right? God says, I'm gonna take care of that. He says, over all the barren, it said, it will be a wasteland parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there's no one who cares. Wow. Over all the barren heights in the desert, destroyers will swarm for the sword of the Lord will devour from one end of the land to the other and no one will be safe. What is it God saying? He's saying, I'm gonna use all these foreign nations that are taking you out. That's actually my sword coming against you. You think it's the sword of man, but it's not. It's my sword. I'm disciplining you. It's pretty intense. And then we see the compassion of God. I'm so, how many are glad this chapter doesn't end there? Keep moving. Compassion of God. Verse 14, he says, this is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbors who seize the inheritance I gave my people Israel, I will uproot them from their lands and I will uproot the people of Judah from among them. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna actually pluck out Judah now. I've, I've taken them out of their land, put them over there. Now I'm gonna pluck them back and put them back into their land. And all those other nations, I'm going to uproot them from their land. Wow. So even the people that are punishing Israel are just a vehicle in the hands of God. God will discipline them for that action. And then he says this, but after I uproot them, I will have compassion and will bring each of them back to their inheritance in their own country. 
This is a very startling statement. What is God saying? I'm going to actually restore even the Gentile nations. God is inclusive. He's not exclusive. He's inclusive. He wants everybody. It says, if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will be established among my people. In other words, if, if people who are non-covenant people turn to God and say, I'm going to follow you, God, God says, I'm going to restore you. God invites everybody in. I love that. If any nation does not listen, I will completely uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. What lessons can we learn? Let's close. About God's forbearance, long-suffering while we're in sin. He delays judgment as an expression of his kindness to make us repent, to change our mind, and to turn back to him. God's not willing that any should perish. He desires all of us to be reconciled to him. And Philip Ryken questions, what lessons can we be learning from God's lament? First, that our sins are painful to God. Our grumblings, our complaints, our moaning, our rebellion, our arguments are like roaring in the ears of God. Because our relationship with God is a love relationship. Our sins wound his heart. Second, no matter what we go through, God has been through worse. That's an interesting thought. In other words, God feels our pain. He's been there. He's a suffering God. God understands our sufferings. Maybe you feel abandoned. Maybe deserted by your spouse. Maybe your sons and daughters have defied you. Is your life filled with ungrateful, hostile people? God understands. He's experienced it. He's been through it all before. He knows our pain. And therefore, we can come with confidence through his throne of grace. So I'm going to have a stand this morning. And maybe you're here today. You know, I, I think this is a great great chapter because the lesson is so powerful how many here in this room you said you know what pastor I have actually struggled with why God allows evil anybody here ever asked that question you struggle with it I hope today that somehow you sense okay I get it God is going to deal with it but the reason he's holding off is even the people that are perpetrating evil, God desires to reconcile them to himself. He's trying to bring them into his kingdom. Isn't that amazing? And aren't you glad that God waited for you? And aren't you glad that God doesn't always judge you and I according to what we do, but God shows us grace and mercy? I thank God for that every single day. And this part I like, we get a window into the soul of God. Isn't that great? That God suffers. He's concerned, you know, and that when he tolerates these things, it's at his expense. And that when he's beginning to show compassion, he has to still deal with justice. He has to merge the two. So how do you have righteousness and justice on the one hand and forgiveness and compassion on the other? It's because he takes the penalty. Isn't that beautiful? God takes the penalty for us. And maybe we're here today, and we, maybe we don't know Christ. I want you to know right now, you can be reconciled with a God that loves you, the one who created you, the one who fashioned you, the one who has a design for you. And all you need to do is open your heart and say, I want to know you, God. Would you come and invade my life? And I'm going to tell you, in the person of Jesus Christ, you will enter into a dynamic relationship with the true and the living God the God who suffers with us in our sorrows, 
the one who understands our pains, the ones we can come to when we're, when we're perplexed, the one who has an answer for us. Not that we come questioning him, but we come with questions. I think that's different. We're not making God accountable to us. We're making ourselves accountable to him. And God does want to answer a lot of our questions. He wants to explain things to us. He wants us to understand. I love that about God. Maybe you're here today, you say, you know, Pastor, I just feel so broken, so wounded. I'm going to invite you to come. Listen to what Jesus' invitation is in Matthew's gospel. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think a lot of believers are walking with a lot of anxiety and a lot of unrest. Isn't that true? We're taking on stuff that's none of our business. That's what I'm trying to tell us. Why don't we just come to God this morning and say, Lord, just take my heart, take my unrest, Take my pain, my frustration. You know, I don't have to save the world. That's your job. I'm so glad he's the savior. I'm just the messenger. I'm just telling people there's a savior there for you. And believers, you know, instead of condemning the world, they're already under condemnation. Jesus said, I didn't come into this world to condemn it. I came to save it. Can I tell you, that's our job. We're to work with the savior. We're to bring a message of reconciliation and hope to a world that's dying and broken. We're to bring a message of love and gospel. You say, yeah, well, what about all the sin? Let's let God take care of all that. Amen? Let's let God deal with that stuff. As a matter of fact, before a person's a Christian, they don't know up from down. They don't know right from wrong. Why are you arguing with them? It's not going to work. Why don't we just let God be the one that brings conviction in people's lives. That's not my job. I'm inviting you this morning to come to Jesus, the one that you can lay your burden down at. So how many here say, Pastor, I want to lay my burdens down today. I want to lay my judgments down. I want to lay my anger down. I want to lay my frustrations down. I want to lay those things down. I want to lay my cares down. I want to lay my misunderstandings down my misconceptions down. I want to lay those things down. I want to just come to Jesus today. Boy, there's rest for our soul there. Come and learn of me. I'm gentle, he says. I'm humble. I say to myself, am I gentle? Am I humble? That's where I want to be. I want to be like him. Am I portraying that to the people around me? That when they come to me, I'm safe and not, you know, not safe. Aren't you glad this day is a day of grace? And the door of grace is open for all of humanity right now. Yes, that door will close one day. God will judge our world. I'm not suggesting he won't. I'm just saying this is a day of grace. Let's walk through that door. So Father, as we lift our hands to you, we want to lay our burdens down. We want to lay our judgments down. We want to lay our anger down, our frustrations down. Even like Jeremiah, he was mad. Lord, I just pray today we'll just lay those things down. And Lord, help us learn of you. Help us to learn. Let's, let's take your yoke upon you, Jesus. Let's learn of you. You're, you're, you're gentle and you're humble. And it brings rest to our souls. Help us to extend the gospel to people rather than judgment. We thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.